Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Gary Cruzy, Managing Director of Research at Arbo. Arbo is a data-driven energy intelligence company focused on the intersection of regulation and the market. Regulation was a hot topic in 2022 and will continue to be as regulatory policy impacts the commercial viability of certain parts of the energy market. This is why I'm so excited today to have Gary here to talk through Arbo and to give us insight on what they see the data telling us. So Gary, thank you for joining me on the show today. To get started, can you share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to Arbo? Sure, Joe, thanks for having me on today. Um, I started practicing law almost 40 years ago. My first assignment was to do the basic work for getting a nuclear power plant licensed and operating. And then for the final eight years of my legal career, I was the general counsel for a natural gas pipeline. I joined Arbo about six years ago. My undergraduate degree is in mathematics. And so Arbo's core mission, which is to provide a data-driven view of legal and regulatory risk, was a nice melding of my two degrees. Um, here at Arbo, we extract data about regulatory and legal risks across all forms of energy, make it actionable so that the businesses can make better informed permitting and other commercial decisions. Um, we regularly deliver that intelligence to pipelines, ENPs, commodity teams, and equity teams through various data feeds, software platforms, and customized advisory services. Arbo was founded about eight years ago, right in the midst of this country's transition from deriving most of its electric energy from coal plants to natural gas. Our initial focus was on the tremendous build out of the infrastructure needed to essentially repipe the entire country as the main source of gas switched from the Gulf Coast to the Marcellus Utica Formation in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. For almost a decade now, our customers have engaged with our data analytics software and subject matter experts to more confidently deploy capital to produce, transport, and trade traditional energy like natural gas. We see the ability to anticipate and interpret what we call the other AI, government policy, regulatory actions, and judicial oversight as critical to the energy evolution as the country begins to rely more heavily on renewable forms of energy. Here at Arbo, we do not engage in advocacy or any political action activities, but our viewpoints are our own and are always data-driven based on the information we have acquired from various public sources layered with the decades of our industry experience. So happy to talk with you about anything you want to talk about today. Uh, take it away. 
Yes, thank you for that introduction. There are a few key points in there that I want to get to. One of those first ones, starting off with one of these historical examples, that transition going from a predominantly coal-driven power grid into now the gas infrastructure and a gas-driven power grid. I'm sure that there were several steps that had to be taken there. What are some of those? And I guess specifically with Arbo, what are some of those regulatory policies that you saw needed to change in order to make that a smooth and and quick, safe, kind of good transition for everybody? Yeah, the, the transition from coal to gas uh, as the major source of electric energy was essentially driven by regulatory and financial pressures um, to lower the carbon emissions and by the lower cost of gas that resulted from the development of the huge amount of natural gas in the Marcellus Utica formation in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. Uh, these changes essentially required a repiping of the natural gas infrastructure of the country for two reasons. First, the change in the primary supply source. Uh, historically, the U.S. got most of its gas supply from the Gulf Coast of Mexico, um, and the switch to the Marcellus Utica meant we needed many more pipelines with their source being in this new supply area. Um, there simply was not enough pipeline capacity to allow that gas to reach the markets where it was needed in the Northeast and eventually even to the Midwest and to the South. Second, because as the, the environmental profile of a natural gas-fired power plant is better than a coal-fired power plant, there was a huge increase in the demand for natural gas as aging coal plants were replaced with natural gas-fired ones that that was not only sort of an economic pressure on these uh, electric generators, but also some regulatory pressure, both applied by the states and the federal government to begin switching from coal to natural gas. So that really drove up the, uh, increased the demand for natural gas at the same time as the supply source was switching from the Gulf Coast to Marcellus. Um, the benefit that the natural gas pipeline industry had um, is that there was a very tried and true regulatory regime. So in, in your question, you asked what needed to change. Not much, really. I mean, what the, the process had been set in place all the way back to the 1930s in an act called the Natural Gas Act. That act had evolved over time um, so that by about 1999, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission was the uh, regulator in charge of that uh, statute and implementing that statute. They had made various changes um, in implementing that statute that had restructured the pipeline industry to um, allow it to be essentially an open access sort of pipeline where any shipper could uh, acquire capacity on the pipes. And that allowed really the develop this huge development um, in the 2010s um, because what FERC had focused on is they would be led essentially by the market dynamics. So if there was a supply basin and a demand, you know, area that wanted a pipeline built, they would enter into what are called precedent agreements that allow then the pipeline company 
to rely on the revenue from that uh, from that from those contracts and build the pipelines that joined that supply basin to that demand center. So, you know, it, it really was just implementing this tried and true process that FERC had been following for probably 10 years since they adopted a uh, what was called a certificate policy statement in 1999. So by the time we reached 2010, um, FERC was being able to pretty efficiently and thoroughly and promptly review the pipeline applications and get them through and allow those pipelines to get built. It's very interesting because it sounds like the, as you point out, that framework and the regulations were kind of already there making and preparing to facilitate that transition from coal to natural gas and and it, it's in some ways coal and natural gas are, are kind of similar you're you're burning something to generate electricity now yeah. with as we talk about switching into renewable energy we're generating power with wind and with solar these are intermittent they are kind of location dependent and you're directly converting what that is into electricity. All that to say, there is a, there's, there's correlations there because we're transitioning again, but we yep. have a difference with common rhetoric, rhetoric emphasizing unreliability and intermittent values of of wind and solar and that adding in cost because of the variability into the power market. I guess that's yeah. a long way to say how does today compare to that natural gas or coal to natural gas transition and and what are ways that that we can kind of ease that transition. Yeah, I mean the there, there are very common similarities, I guess. One is, and you sort of touched on this, uh, not so much the intermittency, but the locational dependency, I guess, of wind and solar. Um, and, and so that's very much like the supply shift that I talked about um, from the Gulf Coast to Marcellus Utica. Um, in the thermal sources like coal, natural gas, uh, nuclear, you essentially build the power plant close to where the demand center is, and then you import the fuel source to that power plant. So you don't need a lot of transmission um, uh, uh, transmission lines to go from the supply source to the demand centers because you've built the supply source near that demand. The, the locational challenge of wind and solar is for efficiency purposes and cost purposes, you need to build that where the wind blows and the sun shines. And that isn't necessarily, sadly, in this country, I guess in some countries it might be near their demand centers, but in this country it is not near our demand centers. Um, and so what that is essentially being is like the shift from the Gulf Coast to Marcellus Utica, you're shifting the supply source of the electricity from right next to New York City to maybe out in Iowa or something. So that's a supply source shift. Similarly, you have a demand 
a, a, a much greater demand for electricity, just like we had a much greater demand for natural gas. As we replace all those coal plants, a lot of power plants that never would have existed and never needed natural gas suddenly needed natural gas. And so the same sort of thing is happening with electricity. At the same time as you're trying to switch the supply source, you're also greatly increasing the demand for electricity as various state and regular state regulators and federal regulators and things and, and the markets all push people towards lower carbon and electrifying everything from cars to houses. You know, that just drives up the demand for electricity in the country. And so it's very similar in that regard in the sense that you're switching your supply source and you're greatly and at the same time you're greatly increasing the demand for the 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 energy uh, that is being produced. So you know the estimates are just like I said, it led to a repiping of our uh, natural gas infrastructure. The estimates are between now and 2050, we probably need to build four to six times as much long distance electric transmission lines as we've built in the last 80 years. So that is a pretty daunting task, similar to that build out of natural gas transmission lines that we built or transportation pipelines that we built, you know, in the last decade. Here we're having to do a much bigger build out um, in, in a probably a much shorter period of time. Um, and the one key difference is we don't have a tried and true regulatory regime for interstate transmission at least not at the federal level like we did for natural gas. So um, for, for these interstate transmission lines, you are really left with a patchwork of state and local regulations that can slow and potentially stop the development of this uh, electric transmission build out that the country needs if we're going to successfully evolve our energy production sources. Very interesting. I think to to kind of say it another way it sounds like the prior that supply shift ultimately meant building new pipelines today that energy supply shift is going to require us to build these new transmission lines but we don't have a a nationwide kind of plan for building out transmission lines and i think Texas is a great example where we we pride ourselves on more or less being disconnected from the rest of the country. But yep. we see what happens when that disconnection and that independence actually doesn't work out. Most, right. Everybody cites the uh, February 2021 storm in the winter. Yep. And yeah, there, there and, and there are and, and that I mean in essence texas is not alone i mean if you go back to the 1930s the the difference in regulatory regimes really started back then and there was a concern about you know uh, these huge monopolies taking over multi-state electric transmission or electric uh, utilities and so what ended up happening is in the federal power act you basically don't allow multi-state sort of uh utilities to be created and that led to a real balkanization among the states so the the difference in texas that you're referring to is in the like 
uh, 1990s, FERC started creating these regional markets for bulk power, um, and Texas sort of created its own standalone one. You know, we're not we're not going to interconnect with anybody else. California and New York did that too, but they also at least said, "Well, we'll agree to be regulated by FERC." Um, for that purpose, um, Texas really wanted to go it alone and did not trust that federal regulation. But yeah, so, so they have their that's, own. That, that's their problem. They 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 really cannot connect to other states, or then they'd have to submit to FERC jurisdiction, and they don't want to do that. So, interesting. Now, I guess to play devil's advocate, if you will. We we kind of see how regulation helped natural gas and that transition, but a lot of people say that regulation is is really the main inhibitor when it comes to building out new energies, new enterprises, new new markets. So I guess a right. uh, question I'm sure you commonly get asked is: Wouldn't regulation just add this? extra burden, extra cost, extra timeline to actually get projects up and running? Yeah, if your choice was absolutely no regulation and regulation, yes, that would probably be true. But that's sort of a false choice. I mean, so again, not to pick on Texas today, but even (laughs) in Texas, um, you know, energy production and transportation is regulated. The The question is really who's going to regulate you and how are they going to regulate you? So it it's not, oh, we could just do anything we want or, you know, somebody's going to regulate you. And the question is, what kind of regulation would you choose? So, again, um, you know, because the sort so our state-by-state sort of regulation worked when, you know, you could move the fuel source by some other method, rail for coal or pipelines for gas, or I don't know, even know how nuclear fuel is delivered, but nuclear fuel into, uh, into a power plant, the power plants could all be built within the state, and so could the transmission lines. And so the state could regulate it all sort of within its boundaries. Um, but again, because the sources of you know, wind and solar are often located in distant states from the demand centers, typically on the coast, your choice really at this point is to leave it as is and leave each locality and state with the ability to extract concessions uh, all along that route (laughs) in order to get that transmission line built from the supply source to the demand centers on our coasts? Or do you declare it in the national interest like we did with natural gas pipelines and put a federal agency in charge? Um, And, you know, with what it may cost, I mean, Certainly, it would reduce the power of local and state governments, and that is viewed as a cost to many, especially in Texas. Um, but, you know, from the, from the position of a, somebody building a, a project, having a single regulator that can efficiently process your application, um, like we had for the last decade in natural gas pipelines, 
that predictability of the regulatory process probably improves the overall return for the developer far in excess of the costs that might be incurred from the regulation. And so I think in choosing between do I have this patchwork of local and state regulation or can I get a single federal regulator, I think many project proponents would say, give me a single, you know, a single federal regulator that can allow me to go to them one time and one time only sort of a one shop uh, or one stop shopping and get my approval and move on. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's where the regulation cost will be factored in. But I think for most project proponents, it's worth that cost. Okay. While you were talking, I just started thinking about the Colorado River as you were talking about concessions and going state by state. And it kind of makes sense to me that if you think of energy similar to the way you think of water rights, at least surface water rights from the Colorado River as, as, the, as the poster child of, of not having enough water, it, right. It's very similar to what you're saying. Every state wants what they need, whether it's a certain, a certain, um, certain royalty on that energy, or they need a certain amount of energy, and whatever's left gets going downhill. And that's. Uh, it sounds like, to your point, it's it. With the Colorado River, it doesn't really work unless there is, an overabundance. And there's always right. more need for that water. And the same with the energy. It it just doesn't, it sounds very difficult to make it work well. Yeah. And, and I guess I would say to further that analogy, the other problem you have is, so again, the because your wind and solar may be remote from your demand center, the states where that wind and solar power is being built, they have an incentive because they get the the investment of that wind and solar project being built in their state. And the demand center on the coast gets the benefit of getting the power when you build the transmission line and connect them to that wind power or solar power. But it would be like a state between Colorado and in California not getting any water rights. I'm just huh. stuck in between. The river runs through me, but I don't get to draw anything off of it. And huh. that sets up a problem. I mean, um, you, you know, that's where they say, wait, what am, what am I getting out of this other than this ugly, you know, transmission line going through my state and uh, take, taking the power from Iowa to, to those people in New York City. So um, mm. it, it, it creates a you know, it, 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 it is the problem you describe, but it's also probably even worse than that because they don't get anything really from it. So, yeah, that is, it's really interesting. I think kind of thinking along those lines and we've been doing a lot of comparison between natural gas pipelines and renewable generation and transmission building and just help me correct me if I'm wrong here kind of the way you're explaining it it almost sounds like natural gas pipelines should hypothetically be easier to build today but we see 
in places like California, no new natural gas for any new or no gas pipelines for new builds, new housing developments. And we see mm-hmm. the Keystone XL being being shut being scrapped and then also on the east coast we see natural gas pipelines being blocked so yeah i guess the i guess i don't have a question here but i'm i'm curious if natural gas can't be developed and and getting transmission for renewables is so difficult what are we going to do well, and that is a tremendous risk we run in this country um, in the sense of, uh, you know, what I think almost everybody from all political views and parties would agree is we want, you know, affordable, reliable, secure, lower carbon, whatever that might be defined as, um, energy sources. And the question is, which one of those do you focus on the most? Um, you know, and so there, we're getting to the point where the efforts of the environmentalists who have been, to your point, blocking the natural gas infrastructure in this country, they're beginning to realize all of these avenues of attack that they've used against natural gas in order to keep it in the ground, as they say. Um, can equally be deployed against wind, solar, and the transmission towers that are needed to move it. So there is beginning to be, so we have a term we use here called environmental purists, which are those who sort of have a a very prescriptive definition of what qualifies as green and, and sort of it's, it's my way or the highway um, with regard to them. But some of them are testing out sort of realistic viewpoints to see if they uh, get ostracized by the purists. But they're beginning to realize that they probably need some type of regulatory permitting modifications um, in order to allow this great tremendous build out of transmission and wind and solar um, in order to in order to allow the evolution that they want to occur. I mean, and, you know, right now, even even in the current bad days, I guess, for gas pipelines, it it probably only takes three years to permit a gas pipeline, Um, electric transmission lines, wind and solar um, projects can take up to 10 years. Um, that, you know, that, that's a real problem when you're talking about a pace and scale of the, that is required to meet the net zero goals that they're describing. So, I mean, you just simply cannot have a 10 year permitting cycle and gets anything done by 2030 at this point we're in 2023 so you know it's beginning to dawn on some of the environmental purists that they might need to compromise in order to uh get some permitting reform um and and give up some of the some of the things that they've uh used against natural gas they might need to give that up in order to get this done but it's only slowly yes. dawning on them. 
So, uh, um, I see your your point and definitely agree. Having that kind of centrist viewpoint and finding a happy medium so that we can all work together is probably what's going to get us to those goals of the 2030 timelines. Right. How how does regulation and I I think we can all answer it by now, but just to to hear it from you, how would regulation help us lead to that happy center? How would that expedite yeah. this process? Yeah, so you know, recently there has been permitting reform talked about in Congress, um, especially towards the end of the last Congress. Um, it had all kinds of problems, um, not the least of which is it was supported by Senator Manchin, who became sort of a pariah of the progressive left um, and also a pariah of the Republicans because he supported the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, so, you know, but I think both the, the, the right end of the spectrum, and as I said, some on the left end of the spectrum are realizing that there needs to be some type of permitting reform um, in order to bring this together. The key question is, you know, whether the centrists in both parties can form some type of coalition sufficient to allow that to occur. I mean, the the benefit or the, I guess, the beauty of what Senator Manchin proposed towards the end of Congress, Senator Manchin and Senator Schumer basically agreed on something that could not get passed at the end of the last Congress. But the benefit of it was it benefited both the the renewables industry, but it also benefited the traditional um, energy industry. Um, and and that is essentially, I think, where you would end up. The only way you can end up with a sort of durable uh, solution is one that does both. Because, again, when you look at the maps um, of where this wind and solar is going to be generated and where it's going to be needed. Um, it's typically generated in red states and it's generally needed in blue states. And that transmission generally goes through red states. Um, and so the environmental purists think that, oh, everybody agrees that uh, climate change is an existential crisis and I'm not sure those people in those red states do agree that that's an existential crisis worthy of sacrificing my farmland to your transmission tower. So um, there's going to be need for a much broader coalition of uh, viewpoints. And, and the way to do that, I, we think, is for there to be permitting reform that benefits both the traditional forms of energy, um, like natural gas pipelines, but also benefits the renewable forms of energy to allow them to be built. And if you can build that coalition, um, that may be sustainable across multiple elections, you know, and, and not have it flip flop back and forth. I mean, one thing we know 
is all of these infrastructure projects we're talking about are very long lead time items. And so one of the key things you need is regulatory certainty and you don't want to spend a, a so Keystone Pipeline, good example of regulatory uncertainty. You spend a lot of money, you know, because you have the government on your side, but then the government flips on you and you no longer do. That regulatory uncertainty means that things just don't get built. And one of the, again, one of the good things about the Inflation Reduction Act is it greatly expanded the use of incentives and gave them much longer terms so that the renewable people can rely on that incentive being there for a long enough period of time to recoup their investment. What the risk to them is, is if there's a change in administration and, and the law changes again, that that would dry up. The other problem they have is, according to the folks at, uh, at Net Zero at Princeton, that almost 80% of that of those incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act cannot be used if we don't get this transmission bill. So, um, again, there there has to be some realization on both ends of the spectrum and some benefit to both ends of the spectrum in order for there to be a durable, lasting, reliable sort of regulatory regime that allows both types of infrastructure, I think, to get built. Yeah, thank you for bringing up the Inflation Reduction Act and that that aspect of the incentives that are that are built into there, because I would think, and I I guess I've heard people talking about, let's build these projects, let's take all of the incentives, and and that is that's the business model. And right. to me, that doesn't make sense. And, and it's, it's important there, as you point out, that I guess this is something I didn't know. You have to get that out. And it has to actually be utilized energy in order to, to qualify for the incentives. And that only makes sense. Right. You shouldn't be able to right. build a project, take a bunch of tax credits, and not have it actually do anything. Right. Yeah. And, and again, and even if you could, I guess who would because the incentives aren't enough to the incentives aren't enough to pay entirely for the project let's put it that way they're incentivized in order to overcome the difference i guess between what the market's currently willing to pay for that electricity and what it takes to get those things built but that means you still need an offtake agreement by somebody willing to pay market prices and if you can't get the electricity to them, they're not. There's not going to be a taker. So, um, so again, all and and to be quite honest, that's what is creating. I think most of the Q problems in all of the RTOs and ISOs is is not that I need certain permitting in order to get my solar or wind plant built but I need to know that I have a way to get it onto the grid. And until I know I can have grid access, um, you know, I can't make a final investment decision because I'm not going to build something that just sits there and literally spins and doesn't send any electricity out to the grid. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, both of those create problems, I think. 
Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Now, I know, Gary, you've been in the hot seat for a lot of this. I tried to be very cordial, although I feel like maybe I was asking some tough questions. Believe it or not, I have had, I think I've had more guests on my show that are poor pro-regulation and pro-permitting than those that are anti-regulation. And right. I, I guess coming from your side, you look at the data, you are analyzing regulations and how to get more energy on the grid all the time. My show being an energy transition focused show, I guess all of this to ask, do you think it is because, why do you think I have more pro-regulation people than not? Is it because most of what we talk about is energy transition and renewable energies? Well, if you are, yes. <laughs> I guess it, if, it, it, if your focus is energy, energy since the early 1900s pretty much has been regulated in this country. Um, uh, primarily because it, it is a classic situation where you don't want three electric power grids going you know fighting over a single customer and you don't want three gas power you know gas lines going to every home or something so they created natural monopolies and when they created those natural monopolies they wanted to regulate them so at all at all times it has been regulated so again i think everybody who probably is on your show is just acknowledging that fact of life that it's going to be regulated. The real question is, what kind of regulation will give us affordable, reliable, secure, lower carbon energy? And and so the fights will be over that, I think. Uh, what is the key goal that you're supporting among those four? You know, how prescriptive is your uh, regulation going to be? Or are you gonna let market forces dictate that so the fight will be over the extent and focus of the regulation, but I don't think anybody will say, just let it go crazy. You know, um, it, it will be some level of regulation, just what constitutes smart regulation, I guess, would be the fight. So. Okay. Very interesting. And I, I guess I haven't thought about that as much that we really only have one gas pipeline going to our house and in in Texas, you have the right to choose for for power provider, but ultimately, all of the transmission here in Dallas is is more or less all ERCOT. There's some co-ops around, but yeah, it's it's right. fairly yeah, highly you don't regulated. Get to pick, you don't get to pick between UPS and FedEx for who brings it to your house. You have to get whoever that line is that's coming to your house. You have to get it distributed by that line. So yeah, um, you may you may choose. You may choose what who you buy from and, and have FedEx or UPS delivered to your house, but you don't get to decide with between those two. So yeah, yeah, and and, and that natural monopoly has been why it's always been regulated. I think so. Okay, so I've got a little bit more of a fun question that I want to end on purely educational. What are the top three things in American history to come from regulation of of either any industry or kind of the energy industry as a whole? Well, I, you know, um, probably at this point, 
you've heard enough about the Natural Gas Act, but we would say that that has been it has served the country well for over a hundred years. It it is not, or almost a hundred years. It is not one that was fixed in time. It has grown and adjusted as the markets have changed. Um, and FERC used it effectively to sort of restructure the pipeline industry in the 90s. But it, it has it has weathered well, I guess I would say. Um, you know, sort of related to the energy industry is the Clean Water Act and, and the Clean Air Act. Again, uh, talking about bipartisanship, those were brought into this world by a Republican administration. Um, and I don't think anybody could challenge the fact that they've been uh, very instrumental in giving us some of the cleanest air and water. I mean, there certainly could be people who argue that it should be cleaner. And there are some who would argue that it's uh, probably been overly burdensome, but at the same time, um, it has generally worked at least for its first uh, 40 years or so of its lifetime. Um, and then, you know, I think we did talk a little bit about state regulation of electric industry. And again, it worked very well for the time period in which it was created. Um, the, the question will be, again, when all of your generation and all of your transmission and distribution can be located within one state, having it being regulated by a state regulator made sense. The problem we face now in the energy evolution with the locational challenge of wind and solar versus the traditional forms of energy is, is will that... Um, sort of regulatory regime be flexible enough to work as we work through the energy evolution. I guess what we would be saying is we don't think so, but and it would probably uh, behoove the country to move to something a little more federally, uh, you know, dictated. But, um, you know, maybe there's a way for it to still work. But it is certainly, again, you know, until very recently, uh, when you turned on your light switch, lights came on in your house. So uh, it has been, you know, critical. I know there are a lot of countries where reliable power is not an assumed thing. And, and at least for my generation, you know, not maybe my mother's generation, but for my generation, it's always been assumed when I turned on that light switch, the light would come on and the TV would come on. So, you know, that that regulatory regime has worked well, I think, as well. Yeah. Yep. Very exciting. Well, with that, I want to transition into the final questions. These are the questions I ask all my guests. They're a little bit more off topic, a little bit more fun. That first one being, what is a, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? All right. Well, uh, I had to think about this a bit. You, you warned me this one was coming. Um, <laughs> and and I went back and looked at some of the other ones, I guess. Um, so I won't go with uh, an energy one purely, I guess. But um, uh, a book from about a decade ago called The Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley. Um, much of what I do. So much of what I do is muck around in issues that seem to be intractable 
and you could throw up your hands and say, woe is me, this is terrible, it'll never work. Um, the good thing about Matt Ridley's book is it is about the progress of human society and when you're mucking around in things that don't look, uh, you know, optimistic, it's nice to get a 30,000 foot view of the progress of humanity over uh, many centuries to see that the arc, the, the arc does bend toward uh, a better world. So, um, you know, I, I guess going back and, and thinking of that is helpful occasionally when when you're when you're despairing, you know that nothing will ever work and the world will end in, at, in the year 2050. So um, it, I, I would assume many people thought that at many points in time in the past. And, and lo and behold, yet we sit here today um, with electric power and the Internet and, you know, and food that can be delivered on command. So um, not, yeah. not a horrible world. To live in, so, yeah, it sounds like a great book to start every year off with reading that to go. kind of set your mind right very right. i guess rationally optimistic and ready yeah. for the next year yeah so the yeah. next because otherwise you can become you can be easily become cynical or or despairing i guess let's put it that yes. way. yes yes so the next question when will we be net zero as a society well so we're sort of in agreement with the uh, International Energy Agency, which is that's really a bifurcated question. And so the developed economies in our mind have to lead the way on this. And so we would agree probably with most of the goals of the developed economies to be net zero by 2050. Um, but the developing world is, you know, still not using energy to the level we do in the developed world. Um, they still are heavily reliant on coal um, as we or even cruder forms of energy. Um, we're not real good at sharing in the developed world, which we might have noticed during the COVID vaccine period where we hoarded it all in the developed world and, and didn't give it to the developing world. Um, so what we tend to do is give the developing world the prior generation solution or something to, to our problems. Um, so we need in the developed world to move quicker, but that would also mean we need to provide them with a way to improve their economies and and improve their uh, carbon footprint. Um, and I, I don't think the solution of just saying, oh, we'll just provide them wind and solar at the same time we get it is even feasible because as we've talked about, it is a huge undertaking for our country to do that. And we're going to monopolize. And if Europe does it and Japan does it all at the same time, we're going to monopolize all of that, you know, resource. Um, and that's why we think those, the developing world will probably be 20 years behind us, maybe 2070. Um, and, and we need to allow them access to, um, our resources that we're no longer using 
which would probably mean natural gas um, to replace their coal. And, and, you know, we can produce natural resources in this country in a far more environmentally friendly and secure and politically uh, appropriate manner than any other country probably. And so we're of the view that, you know, over the next 20, 30 years, um, U.S. production of like natural gas should not fall, but it may shift from being used here domestically to being exported for use around the world to help them develop their own economies and, and catch up, I guess. So let's say it's a really interesting perspective that that most people nobody is is really expressed on this show in terms of that kind of it's almost like a trickle down of the what we're doing now is going towards net zero or low carbon energies and really what we should be doing then is helping the developing world get off of their their coal and their biomass into natural right. gas and that really to your point that that only says great things for the u.s oil and gas industry because we have these great natural gas resources and instead of using those stateside we can build out lng facilities instead of sending those to europe they get sent to africa or they get sent to china or they get sent somewhere else that currently is coal dominated and that in effect helps us helps us reach that net zero almost faster right it helps the world reach it faster it it i i i I worry that the developed world will just say up we reach net zero we're done And, and the developing world uh will be left behind and again we're real good at hoarding resources to the developed world and not real good at sharing them with the developing world so i I think we need to constantly be aware of that sort of um i don't know developed world centric viewpoint of of things so um anyway yeah well the last question now is you actually get to ask me a question all right well so I did see you're a geologist, um, and you've studied all forms of energy. Um, so I, I could just ask about geothermal, but I guess I, I'll ask you, what do you think is the mix that gets the U.S. to net zero? I mean, what are the – what are – in 2050, if you are the czar of, of U.S. energy, what, what do you look out and see – as the sources of our energy. I obviously geothermal plays a significant role, right? And that's not just because I, for my day job, I'm a geothermal geologist. It is because (laughs) I truly believe that geothermal energy is, is going to be that baseload energy that, gives and enables and empowers the it it will provide that reliability that you can then put wind and solar on top of and nuclear i think the existing nuclear plants are going to play a significant role i think with 
new plants coming online and and what's really interesting what everybody's really excited about are small modular nu- nuclear plants mm-hmm. on the scale of tens of megawatts as opposed to the gigawatt scale plants that they're building right now and that i think will will make that much faster there is still in some regards i think nuclear has a larger public acceptance hurdle to get over just because the idea of radioactivity and and nuclear fallout and pretty much any post-apocalyptic story is either zombies or nuclear winter so that doesn't really bode well for the nuclear industry but i think that people are starting to see and understand that that nuclear is going to also play a significant role so and i think there's still going to be a necessity for for backup power for things like peak demand and natural gas as that peak shaving opportunity so if i were to have to to give specific marks i would say i would want maybe 30 percent geothermal in general then maybe maybe 20 percent nuclear and and 40 percent mix of wind and solar and then 10 percent natural gas and then of course hydro would would stay at its its two or five percent that it is today and maybe maybe get less because they're one of the things that i've i've noticed is the removal of dams is starting to be more more common as a talking point as opposed to building new dams in in the northwest and that's something that i could see slowly getting higher um it or lower public acceptance in terms of damming up rivers and and generating power that way and if the Colorado river dries up you're not going to have any exactly and that that could be a that could be a very serious issue when you start when you start talking about something like the hoover dam all of a sudden you can't generate power with it where else are you going to go you're going to go down into the earth yeah (laughs) so the bottom of lake mead or something i mean is there is there geothermal at the bottom of lake mead so that I I don't know for sure, but okay. and and one thing that I didn't didn't add in there when I say geothermal, one aspect of geothermal that that I didn't add storage in much at all there. Mm-hmm. I think that subsurface energy storage, whether that is thermal energy storage, or or compressed air storage or other companies that are working on compressed air water hybrid storage those i think ultimately are going to be a better storage mechanism simply because long term you've got a reservoir or a battery that can have and and i'm i'm adding quotes here you can't everybody can't see it but you essentially have infinite battery life cycles once you start talking about subsurface energy storage compared to the thousand or so life cycles of present-day lithium-ion batteries and you don't have to mine 
to the same degree for these subsurface energy storage mechanisms. There is some plumbing you have to add. If you have a salt cavern, you have to do some dissolution mining, but there's there's less of that. So I mm-hmm. think that we're, we're going to see as those develop that those are going to play a significant role. I, I personally think thermal energy storage in a synthetic geothermal reservoir style is going to be one of the major players but that's that is a potentially a a biased opinion and i (laughs) i will admit it (laughs) plastics go into plastics no go into geothermal yes well gary thank you for joining me on the show today before we sign off is there anything else that you'd like to say uh sure i just at Arbo, we put out a lot of research, and we have resources on our website that uh, anybody could begin to understand the complexities of the regulatory and legal risks associated with the energy evolution. It's a great place to begin your inquiry, and we're always hoping to discuss it with anybody. Just uh, go visit our website at GoArbo.com. Thanks for having us. Yep, absolutely, Gary. And thank you again for joining me on the show. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying this show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you'd like to hear more of. If you want to hear more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find those by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing. I have a quick favor to ask. I have a one-question survey that I want you to go fill out. It's in a link in the show notes. Please go fill that out, and if you do, we can send you some stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low-carbon and high-energy. Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.